Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Today's episode is a good one. Usually our episodes are what I I like to call what I've been kind of told is what's called evergreen content, meaning that they're always relevant. And 25 years ago, this episode would never have happened. We would not have had a reason to do it. It would have been irrelevant. It would not have been evergreen. My hope is that it does not stay evergreen. My hope is that someday I can say, wow, remember when I had to record this episode? It's no longer important. I'm really fortunate to have Dr. Peter Hotez, who is the world's authority really on vaccine science. And he is very forward facing in conversations around vaccine science. And as we sit here today, we are dealing with an outbreak of a disease that we thought had been removed from the list of public health issues, measles. We're also in the middle of influenza season. And we are dealing with the fallout of a whole variety of variables that have come together to put us in a really dangerous place. And so, like I said, my hope is that one day it's no longer relevant, but here we are today. Before we jump into the conversation, just want to please invite all of you who are listening to check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can email me as well, mark at explorethespaceshow. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show. We have created a really amazing archive on the show and the, the, the richness of the guests that we've had, the incredible conversations that we've had. It's all archived on the website. You can find it all through Twitter as well. I love interacting with people who are enjoying the show. I love ideas for content. I love feedback on things that we're doing well. Really like feedback on things that I can get better at or that we can do differently that will help engage and help people really get the most out of what we're trying to do here. Definitely subscribe on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you like to find your content. That's a great way to make sure you keep up with all of the episodes that we're putting out there. And if you can leave a rating and a review, that really helps drive the show. It really helps people find us. So great ways to support us. And I look forward to connecting with everyone that's listening. So Dr. Hotez is the Dean of the Baylor College of Medicine National School of Tropical Medicine, and he's a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Texas Children's Hospital. I went to medical school at Baylor College of Medicine. I spent four years in the Texas Medical Center. It is, there's no place like it in the world. And to have Dr. Hotez joining us today to talk about his work is really, really special. I'm going to stand on the corner of saying he's the world's authority on vaccine science, There's probably other people out there who are really good at it, but one of the things that sets him apart is that he doesn't just know a lot. He doesn't just give advice to people in position. He steps forward into the public sphere and advocates. Dr. Monahana Atisha told me on the podcast, physicians have a megaphone and we have a responsibility to use it. And that's exactly what he's doing right now. And to me, that helps set him apart. Because this is really important. We are facing public health challenges that none of us ever dreamed we'd face. And so here we are. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I hope I can live up to that amazing introduction. So let's start with kind of where we are. And if I can, can I just share with you where I am a little bit? Because I need to vent. Sure, sure. I'm pissed off. I'm going to be really upfront with you. I'm pissed off. When I finished medical school in 2003, measles was not on the radar. We learned about it almost like an anachronism. We learned a lot about influenza. We spent a lot of time on influenza. Like, look, 
The vaccine can vary in efficiency. The vaccine is safe. Here's the deal with the vaccine. We had great instruction around it and we were all really taught like this is something, you know, every fall, winter and spring, wherever you choose to live on the globe, you'll deal with influenza. Here's how we treat it. Here's how we diagnose. Here's how we prevent. All of that sort of stuff was really important. Measles was, here's the pictures. Here's coplic spots. Yeah, not very likely. You're not going to see it. We're in the middle of, I think, and you'll correct me. Do we have three different states that have now declared a state of emergency because of measles outbreaks? Well, let's just, let's just go back to your original statement, yeah. uh, which is that you have, a, you have a good reason to be angry. Yeah. Um, this, you're absolutely right. Measles was a disease that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control had declared in the year 2000 had been eliminated from the U.S. It was gone and gone from the Western Hemisphere in 2016. So, yeah. uh, and now it's a disease that we've allowed to come roaring back. Uh, so we have, um, as we're talking, we have a horrific measles epidemic going on in Washington and uh, neighboring uh, Oregon. We have a measles uh, outbreak now in, in Texas, and it's popping up in uh, other places as well. And, and that's happening all because of a massive misinformation campaign that's being mounted by a very well-organized and well-funded uh, anti-science, anti-vaccine lobby, uh, which which we'll talk about, and it's not only causing people to stop vaccinating against measles and allow it to come back. We're also now we've stopped vaccinating children against influenza. So in the 2018 U.S. measles uh, epidemic, we have them every year. 150 unvaccinated children died, and those lives could have been saved. And influenza, it's also influenza a, 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 system, you mean? Yeah, died from influenza. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Who who didn't who didn't have to die if they were vaccinated? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and then we have also now the third vaccine that's not being used like it could is the cervical cancer vaccine. So in Texas, for instance, only about half the teenage girls get their cervical cancer vaccine. Uh, so we're condemning a whole generation of women to cervical cancer who don't have to get it. So this is a, a terrible situation. And I think it's worth spending some time this, today talking about what's driving this, this reversal in public health. Uh, as Elie Wiesel said, uh, once said, uh, man's weakness is not in achieving victories, but in taking advantage of them. We had a victory. We we chased out measles. We had, you know, influenza, uh, not completely on the run, but getting there. Cervical cancer, Australia, for instance, is now on the verge of uh, uh, eliminating uh, cervical cancer in the next few years. And here in the U.S., we're doing just the opposite. So let's just, to make sure we're on firm footing, I want to just kind of repeat back, right? I want to do a little bit of the teach back method to make sure I'm understanding. We're talking about three major processes right now in the United States, measles, influenza, and the virus that causes cervical cancer. These are the vaccines that are being pushed aside for, by a variety of different forces, but unfortunately have very quickly become marginalized. Is that a reasonable summary? Uh, that's a good summary. Absolutely. So then we have to get to, let's talk. I mean, let's, because uh, for me as a physician, one of the reasons that I'm so frustrated is that I, we, we've all sort of watched this happen and there's been this sort of disbelief and we've all been talking about 
vaccines work. Just get your vaccination. The measles vaccine, these vaccines are totally safe. You, you need to get these vaccines. But I realize now looking back, we were just talking into an echo chamber, which is one of the dangers of, you know, when you're around people, they're like, yeah, yeah. Well, why aren't people doing it? We weren't making the outreach and we were losing ground without realizing that we were losing ground. And that I think is part of the problem. Part of it, for sure, that frustration comes from seeing the people who are doing it and, and trying to gather some understanding of why. And then finally, is I live in a part of California where the vaccine rates are really low, unfortunately. And so we're just waiting, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's going to keep moving to places where the vaccine rates are low, um, whether it's measles or influenza, uh, these sorts of things. Like they, they will move. They don't stay static. They certainly don't respect state borders. They don't, that's not how this works. Well, I, I unpack it to three major forces that are running concurrently. So yeah. let's, let's kind of break it down to those three forces. So the, so who's to blame for this reversal of public health gains? Really, uh, and this really basically created a public health crisis right now. Yes. That's going on in Washington state. So the, 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 the overwhelming amount of blame, number one, is to, the anti-vaccine lobby. This is something that began in the late 1990s with a fraudulent paper that was published in The Lancet claiming that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused uh, what they could, was then called pervasive developmental disorder. Now we call it autism. That was ultimately retracted after 12 years. And that period of time allowed what it was essentially a fringe movement or a cult to grow into a highly organized anti-vaccine lobby that today is comprised of almost 500 anti-vaccine websites spewing out misinformation so that every time a parent puts the word vaccine into a search engine, such as Google, they get anti-vaccine misinformation websites popping up. Uh, it's all then amplified on social media, especially uh, Facebook, uh, and then it doesn't stop there. Now this anti-vaccine movement is writing phony books, uh, producing phony documentaries, and it's even now become highly politicized. So in a number of states, including Texas and Oklahoma and, and others, there are now well-funded, well-organized political action committees raising money for candidates to run on anti-vaccine platforms. So that's uh, that. that's the first driver and, and the most important driver. And I think we and should be we clear, right? That driver right there, I mean, that is a PhD dissertation waiting to happen. How uh, you, There's a lot to unpack just in what you just said. Obviously, we don't have hours and hours of time, but I want people to just take a minute and sit with what you just said, because that is extraordinary to think about, right? And unfortunately- And, and, and now it's going global also. Yeah. So it's now not active not only in the United States, it's active in Europe. In Europe, they had 60,000 measles cases in 2018. And, and my concern is that it's going to go global to reverse things like Millennium Development Goals and Sustainable Development Goals. Do you so have that's, a sense of why? In your interactions, because you are very forward-facing and you do travel the world and you do speak on this subject matter, what what is driving it? What is the motivation? What what where? What's the benefit? So what's what's the driver? And equally important, who's paying for this garbage? I mean, yeah. there's real money behind yes. this thing. I mean, there's millions of dollars behind it. And the answer is I don't know. And it, and what we really need 
is a good investigative journalist, you know, kind of like a Ronan Farrow-style New Yorker article that really does a deep dive trying to understand it. I mean, we know in a couple of cases that, you know, some of the anti-vaxxers are peddling phony autism therapies, like, you know, horrible stuff, uh, bleach enemas and chelation therapy and hyperbaric therapy. So there is some money being made there. And then we heard a story recently, read a story recently about Russian bots and trolls behind it. And that, and that may all be part of it, but I don't think it really gets our arms around the big piece of, of the big, the big driver. So yeah. that's, that's, that's an investigation yeah. waiting to happen. But then, you know, there are two other drivers right, right. that are, that are also, that are enabling forces for this. And, and one of them is the fact that in the U.S. now we have uh, 18 states that allow non-medical vaccine exemptions for reasons of personal or philosophical belief. So this has had a highly enabling uh, component to it. So for, and this is, so one of the things that, that we did was we published a paper in the Public Library of Science last year where we looked at the hotspot areas where kids aren't getting vaccinated in those 18 states. And they turn out to be pretty predictive of where we see measles come up because measles is so highly contagious. The minute it's almost like a biomarker for drops in vaccine coverage. So we were able to use that to predict the current outbreak in Washington, Oregon, and now in Texas uh, and elsewhere. So the, so the state legislators in these states have uh, kind of bought drunk the Kool-Aid and uh, have bought the anti-vaccine phony messages hook, line, and sinker to, to the point now where this is this has become a huge problem. And they basically allowed themselves to be played, is what I said in the New York Times today. Yes. So that that's become a second driver. Then there's a third one, which I like to talk about very carefully, and that is there there's not been a commensurate pro-vaccine advocacy response to all of this. So one of the things that concerns me a lot is that our typical health advocates have not really been out there promoting vaccines and countering the message. So that as a consequence, the defense of vaccines is not really coming out of the federal agencies and others. It's it's fallen to a handful of academics like myself who are writing a book. In fact, we could talk about the new book that I've just written, but you know, that's, that's not nearly sufficient to counter this, what I call anti-vaccine juggernaut that that's now formed. So it's, it's, you know, if you were to assign percentages, I'd say at least 60% of the anti-vaccine lobby itself and maybe another 20% each to the enabling state legislators and the the dearth of or the absence of really pro-vaccine advocacy. So it's, we've, we've got a perfect storm. And then, of course, it doesn't help the fact that historically measles peaks in late late winter, early spring, right. and we're reaching late winter, right. early spring. So so there's this biological piece to this Yeah, I mean, well. so those three buckets, you've laid them out so well, and I would suggest that we have two really powerful rocket booster accelerants. One of them is the timing, as you just pointed out. And then the other one, of course, is the power of social media, because these things, you know, these statements and misstatements, they move so quickly. It's so hard to corral them sort of once they're out there. But, you know, I just want to look in that, into that third bucket with you for a minute. And, you know, I, I, I respect that you say we need to be a little bit careful, but I might take that, 
I might push back on that a little bit. I think we need to really take ownership of that part and say that we all had a responsibility to be a lot more vocal going, you know, over the last 20 years and to probably have a little bit more situational awareness around it and say, this is getting out of hand. And we were speaking into something of an echo chamber, but we also weren't kind of recognizing that we need to meet people where they live to talk about this stuff. You know, the, the journals that you write an article in that I read and I say, gosh, this is so insightful and intelligent. These journals don't get, they don't, they don't get mass appeal. And that's not to criticize the journals. That's just the reality. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of us would get a little bit intimidated or didn't quite know what to say. Or, you know, when you're in a social environment, you, you don't bring it up or someone starts talking about it. And it was just, there was a sense of awkwardness that I've, I've shed completely, but it, it took me a while to get to that place. I, I think that we really need to take a hard look. And when I say we, I'm talking about all of us that are in a position to provide healthcare or are in a position to say, I got vaccinated when I was a kid. I was kept up to date. I'm glad I did it. And I'm in favor of vaccination. And here's why. And I'm going to speak to it. We didn't do that work. And we really do have to play catch up. But I think that we need to to drive that and to have it as an accelerant is there needs to be that sense of owning it and saying, we have to get better at this part. But a few things with that. I think when this anti-vaccine movement began in the late 90s, it was dismissed as a fringe or a cult, and yeah. and I think the thinking in the federal agencies was, well, if we if we call attention to this, we'll only give it oxygen. Therefore, we're not going to say anything. And and that strategy might have been wise in the late '90s, early 2000s. But then, as it started to grow and gain momentum, I think the federal agencies maintained that stance, and it, and it turned out to be very enabling. So I think that was that yeah. was a big problem. And yeah. then I think the other. You know, in our science, profession of science and medicine, we were, by default, we're not good advocates. You know, certainly when I was getting my MD and PhD in New York in the, in the 80s, the, the message we got was, well, you don't engage the public directly. You don't, uh, you don't uh, talk to journalists. That was seen as grandstanding or self-promotion. And so we, it, so it wasn't baked into the DNA of our profession to engage the public. And I don't have a lot of evidence to support that, but I like to cite uh, a study done by my colleagues at Research America, which is a very good policy group in Washington, that last year found that 81% of Americans cannot name a living scientist. And when they could, it was people like Bill Nye, the science guy, or Neil deGrasse Tyson. Nothing wrong with those individuals, but they're not scientists as we know them who, you know, struggle over revising papers and grants and going to lab meetings. So the American public has very little understanding of what we do. And and that's that's been a problem as well. And and so that's why I, when I saw this, this alarming trends of kids not getting vaccinated and measles outbreaks, that's when I started writing more for the public and, and writing. I'd written, I'd written about for the public before about the problem of neglected diseases and creating this ecosystem of neglected tropical diseases. But around the vaccine issue, that's when I started write, writing the book. And, and it was really interesting when I was writing this book, which is called Vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism. And it's about, it's a science book that provides the evidence showing there's no link between vaccines and autism and what autism is and how it begins in early, uh, 
early fetal development, well before kids ever see vaccines. But I also talk a very personal story because I'm the parent of an adult daughter with with autism and and intellectual disabilities. And one of the things that I had to do in the book, which really took me out of my comfort zone, was to uh, write in simple declarative sentences. Vaccines do not cause autism. That's not how we speak as scientists, right? We... You know, if you look at the the Institute of Medicine report that came out in 2012, just to kind of paraphrase, it said, well, you know, the preponderance of evidence to date cannot identify any clear links between vaccines and autism. Well, what what the hell does that does that mean? You know, if you're a non-scientist, that's right, that's right. So, so I think that that also has been a problem. So, I think you know the way we, as scientists and physicians, the way we engage the public, and 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 taking an interest in this is so important. That's why podcasts like yours have an important role because we're kind of making up for lost ground. Yeah, and and I think that what you're saying to me. So, first of all, what you're saying to me really resonates, and I'll tell you why. You you have made that transition to being a leading, you, you're a leading scientist, you're a leading physician. We recognize, and we've actually talked with other people on the podcast that we don't have a cult of celebrity in, in medicine or in the sciences for better or for worse. We just don't, um, you know, otherwise you'd be like a list guy who gets into all the clubs and all the hotels and everything else, but we don't do that. You have made that transition though. Like you say, writing in those sentences that we're used to seeing in the scientific literature versus the statements that go out in 30 point font red type that say doctors are trying to profit from, you know, vaccines or something like that, or pharmaceutical companies are doing this for nefarious gains. Well, that's nonsense, but it certainly is a lot more sticky than the way that we write. And I think it's the thing that I'm really interested in is what that journey was like for you to make that transition from scientist to advocate, because the language, the techniques, the mentality, the ability to deal with confrontation is very different. You've gotten very good at it. And I think that you're going to be a really important guide and a really important sort of bellwether for the rest of us who are saying, hey, wait a minute, we, we need to saddle up here. And we need to push back because this is not going well. Our responsibility is to the public health. The public health is going to start to slide. You've gone on a journey. You wrote an incredibly personal book. That book is, is so well done. And it's a deeply personal story. What was this journey like for you to make that transition? Because like you said, right, it's out of the comfort zone. Yeah, and there was no roadmap to follow. That's right. Uh, either, which 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 was was made at her. Not only was there no roadmap, it was something that was actively discouraged uh, through most of my career, because you know it doesn't translate into, especially if you're an academic physician, yeah, scientist, it doesn't translate into any of the usual metrics, right? I mean, the the metrics that. Uh, my bosses have always looked to are your grants, uh, your papers, and also your grants and your papers. Oh, and, and your grants and papers. And, and the idea that you're going to write a book uh, for uh, public consumption or that you're going to go out there on social media, it's, it's, there's, there's absolutely zero encouragement. So this is something that I'm trying to turn around now and encourage my young scientists, you know, my postdocs and, and graduate students and medical students and residents to be out there, but it's still in early in its infancy. I, I just wrote a, 
an uh, interesting article for PLOS Biology, Public Library of Science Biology, called Crafting Your Scientist Brand, uh, about how to do it and, and why it's necessary if you're willing to, to take that plunge. I'm going to ask you to make sure that I have a link to that because that needs to go out widely. And what you're telling me really does pull up some of the lessons that I learned when I spoke with Mona Hanna Atisha, who is the pediatrician who exposed the issue of lead contamination of the Flint water supply. And I remember feeling like, wow, she's really putting herself out there. This is amazing. She was really effective. And I've had the same reflex in seeing you do your work. Like, boy, he's really brave. And goodness, would I be able to do that? We need more people to read what you're doing, not from a perspective of learning. We're locked in on, we're in agreement that these has to get better. But what also has to get better is getting more and more physicians, nurses, case managers, parents, advocates, everybody, politicians, able to start to pull levers to be more vocal. What were you say? What were the key things for you that helped you make that transition? Well, for me, it was born out of necessity, and it came about in the early 2000s after the launch of the Millennium Development Goals. I was running a research laboratory uh, developing uh, new vaccines for hookworm infection and schistosomiasis and other neglected diseases of poverty. And the Millennium Development Goals came out with one around infectious diseases. It was called Millennium Development Goal number six to combat AIDS, malaria, and other diseases. And all of a sudden, I realized I was devoting my entire life to something which was being dismissed as other diseases and which would never get people to care. And so uh, we strategized with two colleagues from the United Kingdom uh, David Molyneux at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, Alan Fennick in Imperial College London, and we coined this term neglected tropical diseases as, as a branding exercise uh, to get people to care about them or, and trying to get people to care about them. When we were very successful getting appropriations from the federal government for treatment packages for these diseases through USAID and others, and now more than a billion people have got are being treated annually, and that was all because we were willing to step out away from the comfort of our labs and and speak out about these diseases. And it made us realize that as physicians and scientists, we are incredibly powerful. It's just that we choose not to exercise our power. But if you're willing to do it, uh, you can have a big effect. Now, having said that was a great success, having said that, um, my two other big advocacy efforts, I can't say I'm really succeeding. The the other one we're, I've been really pushing hard on is finding this hidden burden of poverty-related neglected diseases in the United States among the poor in the South. And that's been a surprisingly hard slog. I mean, I thought when all the success we had getting people to care about neglected tropical diseases in Africa and Asia and poor parts of Latin America, Heck, finding these diseases in the U.S., things will really take off, and quite the opposite has happened. That's been really challenging in getting people to care. And then around this at this vaccine advocacy issue, going up against the anti-vaccine movement, I think the the real frustration that I've had is is actually, I mean, I knew what I was getting into going up against this anti-vaccine lobby. They're really pretty vicious uh, and 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 organized. And they and they attack like packs of wolves, 
But I think the disappointing part has been not getting the support from the federal agencies or the academic societies. As I like to quote Martin Luther King, not that I'm comparing myself with Martin Luther King, but he once said that, you know, in the end, it's not the um, the words of your enemies, it's the silence of your friends that's so hurtful. And and that, that really has been the case. I think that's the part of this that I would like to help facilitate some change to is I've I'll speak very personally. I've watched you. I've watched other physicians on social media go up there and, you know, swing a heavy bat. And I have felt like, boy, they're outnumbered, man. That's rough. They're really outnumbered. And then pivot and do something and go back to whatever I am doing. And what we need to do is make it so that you're not so outnumbered, right? So it's not just you that is easy to hone in on that there is a legion of us kind of with voices stentorian saying, Hey, you pick on one, you pick on all of us. And by the way, we're right. Not because we're arrogant, but because we care and we don't want people to die. And we have things that can make this basically go away again. Actually the um, it's something I never could have anticipated is there is a group that has rushed to my defense and, and others and it's a group of uh, individuals who are on the autism spectrum and who are very uh, articulate on the internet and on paper, and they identify themselves as the autistics. Huh. Uh, they self-identify themselves as the autistics. And what's happened is they've realized that one of the messages of the anti-vaccine lobby is this phony idea that, it's an, that autism is an epidemic that needs to be stopped and prevented and the, the, the autism community recognizes this is all phony baloney. It's not caused by vac vaccines. We're not something to be prevented or stopped. Uh, basically, they've now accused the anti-vaccine lobby, appropriately so, of advocating for eugenics or even genocide. And so they've really swarmed on the anti-vaccine and, and set them back a little bit. So that's that's been really interesting to watch. What role do our professional societies and licensing boards have in this? Where if they see a physician who is actively espousing an anti-vaccine approach or something that can be perceived as being against evidence, uh, not in the public benefit, do they have a responsibility to counsel, remediate, those sorts of things? Is that, do we need to ask our associations and our licensing boards to take that responsibility on? Well, I think they have, and really, but but for pretty extreme cases. I know California's done this to uh, really one of the real outspoken anti-vaccine physicians. They have they have attempted to rein him in a little bit. But um, I, I think the bigger issue is is how we get the federal agencies yeah. uh, and the academic societies and the foundations to be really out there, um, you know, defending the scientists and advocating for, for the, and being willing to go up against these anti-science movements. Cause right now they appear to be either, either disinterested or afraid. So what are your recommendations for that? Having been out there on the front lines. And I, I think that what you're saying is I'm listening to you. It's really smart. You know, I can do a little tempest in a teapot on Twitter or, you know, one-to-one -one with somebody and that's 
good and you know important. Yeah, or, or even I can write a book. Right, it's a book published by an academic press. I mean, it's, yeah, it'll have some impact and reach, but that's not near. That's it's one piece of things, but it's not nearly enough. So we yeah, need to I identify think, um, the things with big sway and big clout and get them to speak. That's right. This this has to be this has to be made a priority, and as, as so far, it's 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 not. And and I understand it to some extent. I mean, who you know, nobody likes getting standing in line for bagels on Sunday and lo- looking at your iPhone and see yourself being compared to Hitler or Nazis, right? It's it's not a good way to start a Sunday morning. Um, so that's I think a piece of it. I assume I you're think, speaking I from experience I, with that. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh my goodness. Uh, I, I think I think the other piece to that is, uh, you know, they're, they're still stuck in this mindset that by calling it out, they'll give it oxygen. Not being being very tone deaf, not recognizing that this thing is already widespread and having an impact. And if these current measles epidemics don't make them aware of it, I don't know what what will. But we still have a long ways to go. For you on the personal side, having written the book and having been out there on the front lines and, you know, taking the slings and arrows, where do you sit with it? You know, I, I started off the show kind of popping off a little bit and saying how I feel. You've been at this. You've been out there and you, you've been working hard and you really have put your money where your mouth is and staked your professional reputation. Where are you with all of this? Well, for me, the hard part is, you know, and I'm willing to do it. The hard part is is balancing my life because I, I still have a day job and an important day job yeah. and as, a, as a research scientist developing vaccines for neglected diseases and being a professor and a dean and keeping up with the grants and the papers and the lab meetings and the teaching responsibilities. I'm, I'm not prepared to let that go. You know, it's it's where it's it's at my core, but also being able to balance that by continuing to do the public engagement. I mean, so far I've been I've been basically doing both full time, and you know something's going to have to give. So, you know, I'd like to see the at least on this vaccine issue, the advocacy reach a certain point where where it it builds critical mass and others can can take it on. But so far, that's not happening. So what are the things that will shake that loose? What are the things for you, if you were to be able to quarterback the next 18 months, the next 36 months, what would you like to be the, the, the next steps? Well, we saw what it worked in California and unfortunately it was, uh, and it was not pretty, right? It was California was a state that allowed these non-medical exemptions and non-medical exemptions were climbing steeply. And then in 2014, 2015, there was a horrific measles epidemic in Orange County. It landed dozens of kids in the hospital. And it was then the California legislature led by uh, Richard Pan as a, a physician in the California Senate said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not playing this anymore. And they closed the non-medical exemptions. Uh, and that's been effective. We still have, you know, the odd physician writing phony medical exemptions, but I'm hoping that that doesn't become pervasive. But California has largely solved its problem. The problem that what we now need to do is work the same magic in, in the other states. So I think that's, you know, if I had to pick the one 
thing to do on this vaccine issue. It's exactly that, put pressure on the legislators in those 18 states to stop this nonsense. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the anti-vaxxers recognize this as the battleground as well. And they are much better armed uh, and funded to, to wage war. And so it's, it's a battle. And what would you like to see happen in medical education and in providers who are in practice and the sort of the, the whole scope of people who are involved in healthcare who feel, who, who feel like we need to move the needle in a different direction? What would you suggest? What are the tools that, that we can put into play? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer, but a few things come to mind. One is uh, we we need to uh, educate medical students, residents, uh, better about the policy environment because health policy right now in many medical schools either is not taught at all or it's you know maybe there's one lecture called health policy. And that's just not adequate. We need so we need to train a cadre of physicians who are policy experts, but also how to be advocates. You know, and get them media training uh, and get them out there used to understanding what the different outlets are, including social media. And, and I think the students and residents will love it. I mean, you know, the, despite all the complaints about the younger generation, from my personal experience their interest in public service is at an all-time high. We're just not capturing it. So I think if you were to really uh, build in policy and advocacy into medical school curricula, into residency training, especially residency training, because they're a little more mature and a little more receptive at that point, I think that could be a game changer. I'm sitting here thinking about who I interact with on social media and the majority of them are people who are in generations behind me. I'm not that old. You know, I finished medical school in 2003. I finished residency in 2006, but the vast majority of people that I'm interacting with on social media are people who are younger than me. I would, I would love to see survey data, but I would guess that the engagement of current medical students, residents, trainees in nursing, all of the nurse practitioners and physician assistants and all of the people going through ancillary training that they're on yeah, social media as well. Yeah, let's let's not forget the nurses. The nurses uh, are power are very powerful. Oh my goodness gracious. For us. It, it, just think about what happens if you build in a groundswell of nurses who have gotten that social media training, who've gotten that policy training, who are now part of their unions. Those are extraordinarily powerful political voices. I mean, we've seen that in California time after time. But the, right. if what you're suggesting, it might not give us immediate solution, but it will prevent in 2035 having the same thing happen again, where after a while we get comfortable, we get we maybe get a little cavalier that everything is fine and this will never happen again, and then it happens again. But that those voices, yeah, we, we have we have to build it into the DNA That's of, of our professions, and because you know today it's the anti-vaccine movement. Who knows? And it's not, and it's not just the vaccine issue, right? It's yep. anti-GMO anything. It's yep. uh, it's climate denial, and who knows what will be done in the line. And I would suggest one of the major calls to action is is from people who sit in offices like yours, who are deans, who are medical directors, who are university presidents and medical school presidents to say, listen, the stigma around media savviness, the stigma around interacting with colleagues on social media, we need to pivot from that. 
We need to take a rational and mature approach to it. We can't just let it be a free-for-all, but we need to train our students and we need to train all of our teammates to get better at this because that's where this lives and that's where they live. They're there all the time. They're on Instagram and they, myself, like we're, we're all there all the time. I learned about youth, you know, really got into it through social media. I pinged you on Twitter and right, here we are. Right. So the opportunity I mean, we, we should, we should be, we should be doing practice podcasts and practice interviews on TV and radio for, for this whole next generation of nursing medical. I'm 100% in agreement. If you want me to come out to Baylor to help with that, I'm there. That's where Uh I went to medical school. I would like nothing more. It would be incredibly fun. And I get asked about that all the time. I was very shy about talking about my podcast for a long time and that's gone because this is important and this is the way people learn. And this is the stuff that people find entertaining while they're learning. And look, it's also, these are super smart people. Some of the most wonderful threads that I get, I like to call them hashtag med threads on Twitter. They're residents and then they're medical students who bring up a really cool point that they learned on rounds. They provide the evidence. They give all of the citations. And when you look at the interactions with those, when you look at those, when you look at on Twitter, the metrics that they get, I mean, we're talking five figures of people in a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we have work to do. We have work to do. You have framed this issue for us in a way that for me has been really, really helpful because it's not just rage and anger and rending of garments that we can focus a little bit now. And you're doing extraordinary work. I mean, you have blazed the trail and we need to, we need to walk with you. We need to saddle up and walk with you. Well, thanks so much. Unfortunately, this issue is not getting better. It looks like things are getting worse. The, um, you know, I, I think we're still early in measles season, so I think that's looking bad. We'll see what the tally is from this last flu season. Um, but it seemed from the last few years, every year has been worse than the last. So 2018 was the worst year from Europe in decades in terms of measles. And now I'm very worried about this thing starting to interface with Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And I think that's another battle because I think a lot of the international health agencies and our, our global health advocates somehow think this is all walled off. Uh, in North America and Europe, and they don't see the relevance. They don't see how middle and upper class parents are reading this garbage on the internet and social media and now not vaccinating their kids in Brazil and India and elsewhere. So uh, I think that's going to be an important battle as well. It's a real call to action that you're sounding. You have a rich portfolio of resources, writings, interviews, it's all there. How do we find you? How do we find, first of all, the book? Give us the name of the book again. So the book is called uh, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. Uh, it's published by Johns Hopkins University Press. You can certainly get it on Amazon. That's probably the most straightforward way to, to get it. Uh, and uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, just at Peter Hotez, at P-E-T-E-R-H-O-T-E-Z. And I'm not saying Twitter's the answer, but I guess that's that's the beginning. And just trying to continue to be out there and, and being out there in the media. We, you know, unfortunately, on local news just today was a terrible story about an, with an anti-vaxxer parent just making up stories about her child being vaccine injured 
and the TV stations saying they have to do it because they have to be give a balanced view. And I said, no, you don't have to give a balance. There's no balance. There's no balance. There's no there's no, there's no debate. And yep. so we've got a lot of education to do about our uh, our media leaders as well. And I might also suggest your website, peterhotez.org. I found that to be yeah. a really nice clearinghouse of interviews, essays, articles, videos, things like that. You want a phys- you want a well-trained physician with respect to media training. This is where you go to learn it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for giving attention to this issue. This has been really informative. I'm very, very grateful for your time and your insight and your expertise. We will definitely need you to come back because this is going to be longitudinal work. It does not feel like it's just all going to go away when the spring starts. So, you know, we'll, we'll obviously follow along. And when, when we need you back, we'll, uh, we'll send up the signal for sure. Well, thanks. Unfortunately, this issue is the gift that keeps on giving. So I think we'll be able to circle back and, uh, and look at version 2.0 pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you again so much for your time. This has been really, really helpful. Great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.